drive that glory train. We'll all meet you at the station. How y'all doing today? Uh, I don't know why, but I got that movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, in my head. I got to get it out. It's... Well, praise God. There's a lot of different ways to worship the Lord. All of them are good. All of them are good. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Luke. This is what we do here. We uh, worship the Lord and then dive into the Word and we pick it apart verse by verse. Amen. Amen. It may not be the most exciting way to go about things, but it is the most thorough way to go about things and that's what we're into. Uh, We're going to have at the end of this message uh, another time of worship and a time of ministry. Uh, God in the last, in the first two services has just showed up in some powerful ways and I'm expecting God to do the same uh, in this service. Uh, we're looking here at Lessons from Anna. I'm titled this Lessons from Anna because it centers on a woman named Anna. You'll recall at this point in the narrative what we have is uh, uh, Joseph and Mary have gone into the temple and uh, they dedicated their child to the Lord and then this guy named Simeon came and kind of prophesied over them. And then this woman named Anna shows up. We haven't heard about her before. We never hear about her after. But she has this little, little segment in the narrative, a little segment in the, in the birth of this kingdom that is happening in these first chapters of Luke. So it says this, starting in verse 36. There's also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Just know that she's a prophetess, which is simply the female version of prophet. And a prophet in the Bible is... Uh, most fundamentally, a person who speaks under the inspiration and with the authority of God. They become the mouthpiece of God. That's what a prophet is. A lot of people today think of prophecy as primarily about predicting the future. But that actually had very little role uh, in, in the Bible in terms of what a prophet did. There was some of that sometimes. But on the whole, it was speaking the word of God right here and right now for a particular audience. And sometimes it had implications for the future. There was warnings about what might happen in the future. But uh, most fundamentally, a prophet or a prophetess is someone who speaks uh, with the authority and under the inspiration of God. Now it says she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. And most Jewish girls were married around the age of 13 or 14. So from from her early 20s, this lady had been a widow and as we'll now see, she spent all of her time in the temple. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, which is the coming, uh, what we saw earlier is the consolation of Israel. A lot of things we're going to be talking about on this passage. We're probably going to hover on these three verses for at least a couple of weeks, talking about prophecy and and uh, talking about prayer and fasting and worship and some other things. Uh, This morning I want to focus on one little detail of this passage. It's on the fact that Anna was a woman. All right. Can we stand? Let's pray. Stand. Let's let's just do a a little kingdom prayer. We've got a unique opportunity and authority as kingdom people uh, to change the world through the power of prayer. So grab the hand of the person to your right and the person on your left. If there's a person to your right and left, And just in your hearts and in your minds, agree with me as I lead us in this congregational prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you from the depths of our heart for calling us and saving us, redeeming us, and cleansing us. We thank you, Lord God, that you've made us partners in the building of your radical kingdom here on this earth. 
And we thank you, Lord God, that you've given us a unique authority through the power of prayer to unleash a blessing from heaven to change the world. We use that authority right now on behalf of the person on our right whose hand we're holding. And we just, Lord, agree with you that they have unsurpassable worth, that they were worth Jesus dying for. Praise God. We agree with you on that, Lord. And we pray a blessing on their life in every way, Lord God. Bring your kingdom to their health. Bring your kingdom to their mind. Bring your kingdom to their families. Bring your kingdom to their relationships. Lord, we pray blessing on their finances that they may prosper and, and be a blessing to others and be a blessing to the ministry, Lord God. And we pray, Lord, that you now open up their minds and hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. And we pray for the person on our left, Lord God. We agree with you that they have unsurpassable worth by virtue of the fact that Jesus paid an unsurpassable price on their behalf. We agree with you, Lord God, and we pray blessing on them, Lord. We just pray an unleashing of power from heaven to impact for the kingdom their families, their friendships, their, all of their relationships, Lord God. If there's any conflict there, we pray that you bring kingdom peace and forgiveness to their relationships, Lord. We pray, Lord God, for their health, Lord, that there'd be healing if there's any area of sickness or disease in their life. And we pray for their finances. We pray blessing and prosperity on their finances, Lord, that they may be a blessing to the kingdom and a blessing to others in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, that you'd open up their minds and open up their hearts to receive your word here this morning, that they may walk out of here more kingdomized than they, than they were when they came. Lord God, we together pray for our children right now, Lord. We pray blessing on our children's ministry, Lord God. Let your word go forth and build those little kids into an army, Lord God. Let the gospel find fertile soil in those little hearts and little minds, Lord God. And we pray for our youth right now in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord God, that you'd be sending down fire from heaven, Lord God, to make them passionate warriors for the kingdom of God. Let it be done in Jesus' name, Lord. And now, God, as your word goes forward, as we just pick apart your word, we just pray, God, you'd give us open minds, open hearts, and infuse it with your authority, not a human authority, but authority that comes from God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 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 Praise God. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes. You may not see empirical evidence of it with your eyes, but you've got to know by faith and on the authority of the word that the person to your right and the person to your left, their life is a little bit different now because of that prayer. James 5.16 says, Amen. <laughs> Prayer is powerful and effective, and it always leaves the world a little bit changed for the kingdom of God. I'm focusing on the, 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 the sheer fact that Anna was a woman. Here's why this is important. She's a woman who spoke authoritatively and with inspiration the word of God. We need to pay attention to that because there has been a long tradition in the church in fact, it's still prevalent in conservative Christian circles. A tradition that says that women cannot or should not have spiritual authority over adult males. And this is why throughout the church tradition you have, uh, uh, with, with very few exceptions, a sort of a rule that women, while they have roles to play in the kingdom of God, they can't ever be pastors, they can't ever be teachers, uh, they can't ever be overseers. Um, in some congregations yet today, uh, they're not allowed to be a, a senior pastor or be on the overseer board or have prophetic words or, 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 or serve in any capacity, teaching, evangelism, preaching, whatever, in which they have spiritual authority over a man. A long tradition. We have, whenever we uh, have a, a female preacher in, in the pulpit, uh, Almost always, we have at least a few letters from people saying, how can you do that? Because the Bible, I was taught that the Bible forbids that. And, and aren't you disobeying the word of God by having a, a female preacher? 
I've had several people who have uh, told me that they would love to be part of Woodland Hills Church, but they disagree with our stance on women in ministry. Uh, they disagree with the fact that our executive pastor, who is one of the primary spiritual authorities at, at Woodland Hills Church, is a woman. Uh, and, and so they won't come. We have times where women get up to preach here, and, and sometimes uh, people, usually men, not always though, walk out. They just think it's wrong to be under the uh, spiritual authority of a woman. It's a real issue for us because one of the things we feel called to do, have from the start, is to be a body that empowers women to ministry. Uh, if that is where they're called to, if that is where they're gifted, is that, if that is where God wants them, we want to get behind that and all around that. And so I want to use this opportunity as we confront a woman prophet in the text uh, to talk about why we believe what we believe about women in uh, ministry. Those who, and I can't answer all the questions and, and the issues that arise around this topic, but I want to get the core of it here. The main reason why the church traditionally has held that women cannot have spiritual authority over adult males, uh, it, it centers on one verse. It's found in 1 Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor at, at Ephesus. And here's what he says in chapter 2. I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety. And here's what it looks like in the first century to be decent and, and with propriety. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Not a single amen. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I, do not, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? What do we do with that passage? Now, the question revolves around this. Everyone, everyone grants that... Um, in the Bible, there are things that are, 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 are taught as timeless truths, uh, transcultural truths. That means they apply to all times, all people, all situations, all cultures. Regardless of any other variable, this is a timeless teaching. But everyone also grants that that timeless message is wrapped up in cultural trappings. And so there are culturally relative aspects of the Bible. Everyone grants that. The question is... Is, is the particular application of the principles of this passage, are they timeless or are they culturally relative? There are things about this passage, as well as other considerations we're going to see here in a moment, that lead me to believe that the particular application of the principles of this passage are culturally relative. Here's one consideration. We need to notice that the prohibition about women having spiritual authority over men is simply one of five things that Paul prohibits about women uh, in this passage. He first says that women shouldn't have braided hair. Now, that, if this is a timeless passage, then we should be teaching that women shouldn't ever braid their hair. Let's look around. Do we have any, any rebellious women here who've got braided hair? And then he says women shouldn't have, wear gold. And women shouldn't wear any pearls. Got any pearls here? Uh, you know? Uh, women shouldn't wear expensive clothing. Hmm, anyone wearing uh, expensive clothing, clothing from uh, Amber Crombie or whatever expensive clothing store would be? Uh, <laughs> here's my point. 
I don't know expensive clothing stores. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing. Everyone understands that that's a culturally relative thing. Wearing braided hair and gold and pearl and expensive clothing meant something in the first century that it doesn't mean now. So there's reasons why Paul prohibited that in the first century, but we don't prohibit it now. But how can it be that four out of five things in a passage are culturally relative? Gold and pearls and expensive clothing and braided hair, that's culturally relative. But women having authority over men, man, that's timeless. That's timeless. We're sticking with that one. See, something else is going on here. Something else is going on here. The fact that, that everyone grants that the majority of this passage is culturally relative suggests to me that we ought to be more inclined to think that the prohibition about women having authority over men, that also is culturally relative. Now, if we look at the first century context where Timothy is a pastor, uh, we can really see clearly why these things were prohibited in the first century, but also why they ought not to be prohibited in the 21st century. Three things I want to say about the context in which Timothy is ministering in Ephesus. First of all, we know from history that wearing braided hair and gold and pearls and expensive clothing was generally considered, especially by Jews, it was generally considered to be at best a sign of haughtiness and pride. You're putting on display how rich you were, and that was always frowned upon uh, among Jews. It could sometimes, in some contexts, and Ephesus is one of those contexts, it could be a sign of sexual immorality. In fact, it could be an, uh, uh, a sign of prostitution. A woman would wear these sorts of things and dress this way if they were advertising that they were for sale. So what Paul is saying in the first century is, don't, women who profess godliness, don't dress like prostitutes. And don't be putting on display, drawing attention to yourself, all of your riches. It makes sense. That's what it looks like. Now, now, wearing braided hair and wearing gold and pearl and those sorts of things, it doesn't have that meaning any longer. So the verse doesn't have that application. The principle still applies. Women don't dress like prostitutes. Uh, you know, you rather dress in a way that, that glorifies God. But what it looks like for us to do this in the 21st century is different than what it looks like in the 1st century. Secondly, it's important to note that in Ephesus in particular, uh, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the Temple of Diana. It was a religion that was centered on a female goddess. It had all female leaders, high priests who were females. Uh, part of the ritual of this ancient religion is that they would uh, be involved in what was called temple prostitution. Patrons would come and have sex with the, the priests, and that was actually given religious overtones. Uh, it, was, it was seen as a way of sort of... Uh, uh, having a religious experience, if you will, with the, the, the goddess Diana. And they would use the funds of this prostitution to support the temple and that entire religion. So we can begin to understand why Paul would say, in this context, women shouldn't be in leadership for, because everyone's going to identify women leaders with the temple, especially if they're dressing like the temple prostitutes. It's a very particular thing. But it doesn't mean that that principle would apply today. The third thing about the ancient world is this. Uh, women on the whole, there are a few exceptions, but on the whole, women weren't allowed, they weren't afforded any educational opportunities, especially in Jewish culture. It was, uh, it was believed that education is simply for men. Uh, most women couldn't read or write in the ancient world, and, and were, were given no instruction about uh, the Old Testament, or some, it depends on the parents, but on the whole, they were uneducated, and in a culture where women uneducated, it's just not going to be advantageous to make them leaders. How do you expound on the Word of God if you can't read it, if you've never been taught it? 
So we can understand why in a patriarchal sexist culture like the first century, with all these restrictions on women, why Paul would say in this particular context it's not advantageous to the gospel to put women in leadership. Instead, they need to learn and let them learn in submission. But it's not a timeless application. If you think it is a timeless application, if you think that it's a timeless teaching of the Word of God, you've got some explaining to do. Uh, one of the main ways you can tell whether something in the Bible is a part of the timeless teaching or whether it's culturally relative is, is you ask this question, is it taught uniformly throughout the whole Bible? If it's a timeless teaching, there won't be any variations on it. If it's a culturally relative thing, sometimes it might be there and sometimes not. For example, uh, in the Bible you'll find most of the time uh, it, it, uh, biblical authors are okay with drinking wine and, and alcohol. They see it as a gift from God. Uh, Psalms 104.15, thank the Lord who gives us wine to make the heart happy, and, and things of that sort. But there's a few passages that frown upon it. In fact, they absolutely prohibit it. In certain contexts, it's not okay to drink wine. Whether you drink wine or not depends on the particulars of your cultural situation. That's a culturally relative thing. But throughout the Bible, you have a prohibition on getting drunk. And we could debate a lot about what's the difference between a happy heart and drunkenness, but let's not go there right now. <laughs> I'm not drunk, I'm just happy. Uh, you know. yeah, the Holy Spirit's got to lead you on a few of these things. But my point is that the timeless teaching is don't be drunk. The culturally relative thing is whether you should drink at all. Okay? So, so whether it's consistent or not is a, is a key component on deciding whether something's timeless or not. Now when we come to uh, women having spiritual authority over a man, we'll find that, in fact, there are many exceptions to what we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 1. A couple of things you've got to answer if you think this is a timeless principle. Number one, what do you do with the fact that women wrote parts of the Bible? And the Bible, presumably, is supposed to have authority over all of us, men and women. All of it is supposed to have authority over all of us. Amen? And women wrote part of that. If women can't ever have authority over a man, well, what do you do with those parts of the Bible that were written by females? Uh, the passage we read right here. Anna's giving a word about the Christ child. It says specifically that it was for all who wait for the redemption of Jerusalem. Clearly, this was, uh, the, 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 the author understood that this was going to be written in the Bible and, uh, and that all who read it now come under that authority, whether you're a man or a woman. And the minute you say, this passage has authority for me, uh, if you're a man, you're saying a woman has, uh, has been used by God to have spiritual authority over me. We find Elizabeth's words recorded in Luke chapter 1. We find Mary's words being recorded in Luke chapter 1. In fact, about a third of the passages we've studied so far in the last six months from the book of Luke have been written by women. And if women can't ever have spiritual authority over us, well then, are the men supposed to just ignore those passages? And if you say, no, men should submit to those passages, you're saying you should submit to a woman being used by God to give an authoritative word. Clearly, clearly, uh, it's not a timeless truth that women can, in any context, have spiritual authority over a man. You've got Miriam's words recorded in the Bible in Exodus 15, and you've got Deborah. She has a whole chapter of the Bible in Judges chapter 5. In fact, interestingly enough, Deborah was the leader of Israel, all of Israel, including the men. Now, if women are never supposed to have spiritual authority or have any authority over a man, what do you do with Deborah's leadership of all of Israel? Question number two, what do you do with the fact that women are, are prophets? And to be a prophet means you speak the word of God with authority and with inspiration to whoever's listening, including men. 
Throughout the Bible, you find female prophets. Miriam, whom I just mentioned, was a prophet. Huldah is mentioned as a prophet. Isaiah's wife was known as a prophet. Anna, in the passage we read this morning, was a prophet. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul assumes that women are consistently being used in the gift of prophecy. He says that when a woman, when, when a woman prays or prophesies in church, she ought to have her head covered. Because not having your head covered in the first century... Was, was a very offensive thing. Now, today, no one's offended by that. So that's part of the cultural relative aspect of that passage. But what's timeless is that Paul assumes that when the Spirit of God is poured out, women are going to be prophets. In the Old Testament, uh, it's rather rare that a woman is used by God in this way because the culture is extremely patriarchal. That means dominated by males. But when the new era comes, when the kingdom comes, when the uh, uh, New Testament is being written... We find that the, the, the gates are opened up for men and women equally. Here's what Peter says in, uh, in, in the first Christian sermon in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Everyone say, and daughters. And daughters, and daughters you got that. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Even among the servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. And the thrust of this is Peter is saying, essentially this. In the past, it was mainly men with, with some women. But in the last days, which is the last chapter where this kingdom is being formed and the kingdom of God has come, the spirit of God is going to be poured out equally on men and women, and equally uh, men and women are going to prophesy, even on some of the servant women. They're at the bottom of the, of, of the pecking order in the social structure of the first century. But God's going to use them to speak authoritatively and with inspiration. And if their owners are in the audience, the owners got to listen because they're speaking the word of God. When the kingdom of God comes, everything's going to be turned upside down. And those who have got no voice in society are going to get a great voice in the kingdom of God because God is no respecter of persons, praise God. Women can be used in authoritative, prophetic, inspiring roles in the New Testament. That's why you find in Acts 22, it notes uh, the four daughters. Philip had four daughters, and all of them were known as being prophets in the church. Uh, they were renowned for that. They spoke the word of God authoritatively and under inspiration. Uh, we find, uh, number three, if you think this is a timeless teaching that women can't have authority over a man, can't be teachers, can't be evangelists, can't be preachers, what do you do with the fact that the first Christian evangelists were women? Think about this. Uh, women go to the tomb, and they find the tomb empty. And where are the men? They're scared. <laughs> They're afraid. They're hiding. So the angel says to the woman, go bring the good news. He was dead, but he's alive. Good news. Euangelion in Greek. We get the word evangelism for it. The angel is saying, be evangelists. And who are they evangelizing? The scared men. <laughs> now, if it's a timeless teaching that women can't ever teach uh, spiritual truths to men, what do you do with that? Were the apostles supposed to go, la, 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 we're not listening because we're men and, and you have nothing to tell us? No, no, no. See, in the kingdom of God, these women have insights, and, and, and they've got a, a commission from God. And when you, get, when you have spiritual insights and you have commission from God, you've got to share it. And if there's men in the audience, they've got to listen. I don't care if they're apostles. <laughs> Number four, both Aquila. What do you do with this fact? Both Aquila and Priscilla were said to teach Apollos in Acts chapter 18, and Apollos was a man. Number five, what do you do with this? In Romans 16, 7, Andronicus and Junia, those are two females, 
Paul points them out as being, quote, outstanding among the apostles, unquote. Now, they're not one of the original 12 apostles, but to have apostolic authority meant you oversaw congregations. They're overseeing house churches. And among all the different people in the early church who had apostolic authority, two of them were particularly outstanding and worthy to be mentioned, and they happened to both be women. And you've got to know that there were men in those house churches. Clearly, under, in some cultural situations, women could have great spiritual authority even over men. If you're not convinced, number six, what do you do with the fact that whenever Paul talks about gifts and callings, never once does he mention gender. Not even when he's discussing being a pastor or a teacher or evangelist. He never mentions gender. And that wasn't because everyone assumed that it was only males who could do it, because we see at Ephesus, there were women who wanted to be teachers, and in that context, Paul said no. But ordinarily, Paul doesn't consider that to be at all relevant. The principle that Paul hits on in terms of calling, whether you're called to a particular ministry or whatever it may be, is simply this. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 that God allots gifts and gives callings according to the Spirit, as the Spirit chooses. And God can choose whoever He wants, and clearly we see precedent for God sometimes calling women in positions where they have spiritual authority over men. It's about what God wants, which means that what position you assume in the church should all be about whether God has gifted you, equipped you, and called you for it. It should not be about gender, and it should not be about race, and it should not be about social strata. It should not even be about your educational level. It's about what God wants to do in your life, and if God says yes, no one can say no. Amen. And in doing this, Paul is simply manifesting a kingdom principle. The kingdom principle is this. That there is, he says, no longer, there used to be, but no longer is there any Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, not in the body of Christ. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, now here's the thing. Obviously, there are still men and women. I'm looking out, and I'm seeing some men and some women. And, and so there are still men and women, and there's still Jew and Gentile. There's different ethnicities. Thankfully, we have no longer in this culture slave or free. We've finally outgrown that cultural restriction. But we, the, the, the difference is still here. What Paul's getting at, however, is this. These distinctions that mean so much to the world, that the world leverages so much on in order to put some above others and to separate people and to draw up all these walls and, and all these kind of things, all, this, all the fallen garbage of this fallen, demon-oppressed world, those distinctions and that hierarchy, that way of making decisions on the basis of gender or social strata or ethnicity, all those things in the body of Christ are to have absolutely no meaning whatsoever, praise God. The walls are supposed to come down. In the body of Christ, we all know that we're simply sinners saved by grace, created by God, ascribed unsurpassable worth because God paid an unsurpassable price, passable price for us, and that's all that matters. That's all that matters. We're covered by the blood. So whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, whether you're black or whether you're white or whether you're Asian, whether you're Hispanic, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your social strata is, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether in the world you got power or you got no power, are you keeping up with me here? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's utterly, utterly irrelevant. Utterly irrelevant. It's got no meaning whatsoever. We see each other through Jesus' spectacles. And that means all the other cultural spectacles are taken off. There are cultural factors that sometimes make it advantageous or disadvantageous in, uh, for, for, for women or other groups to, to uh, attain a certain level. For example, if you go to Afghanistan and you're a woman, chances are you're not going to be very effective as a senior pastor. 
Because they still have the same kind of sexist, patriarchal mindset they had in the first century. That's just the reality of the cultural situation. Now, what God wants to do in those situations is he says, we'll work with the culture, but you plant seeds that are, hopefully will grow and eventually change the culture. But in order to change the culture, sometimes you've got to accept parts of the culture, even that are part of the fallen world. But God's heart of hearts, his, his, his ideal is to be moving the church and moving the culture to the point where what you do and how you're gifted and, and the role that you play is not based on anything that the culture says, but based simply on whether the Spirit of God uh, calls you. We've got to ask the question, why is the church, at least large segments of the church today, still adhering to this first century prohibition? Not, not even a first century prohibition, a first century Ephesus prohibition. Uh, the church generally realizes that wearing braided hair is cultural relative. Uh, whether you wear gold or not is cultural relative. The pearls is cultural relative. Dressing a certain way is, is cultural relative. Whether you wear a veil on your head or not, that's cultural relative. The church generally, thankfully, finally realizes that the, the allowance of slavery in, in the New Testament, that was culturally relative. It's something that God put up with for a while, but he plants seeds to, to grow the church and grow the culture out of that demonic uh, 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 restriction. But why are we still holding to the prohibition? about women, which is really simply a, a, a variation of the first century allowance of slavery. Because women on the whole were regarded as property. They weren't given full human dignity. Why are we still holding to that? In our culture, this isn't Afghanistan. Uh, there's still a legacy of sexism for sure in this culture. But on the whole, women are, are given uh, equal opportunities for education and, and other areas. Why do we still in the church act as though that was not the case? And it creates some bizarre situations woman I know has got a Ph.D. in Hebrew and Old Testament studies, and she's brilliant, and she teaches at a university. But when she goes to church, she's not allowed to teach or vote. What, she's got nothing to say to men? Uh, uh, there's something bizarre in, in that. A woman can have incredible leadership skills, be the CEO of a major corporation with 197 men under her, and they all recognize that she's got leadership skills, and they listen to what she says. But when she comes to church, she can't uh, live out her leadership skills on a board. Uh, and, and, and can't, can't do what she's created to do. Why is that? The devil. <laughs> the devil. <laughs> I love you, man. It's the devil. It's a legacy of a demonic lie in the culture. When we still hang on to first this particular very selective and rather arbitrary uh, restriction of the first century, it is catastrophic. Uh, it does damage, at least in two ways, at least in two ways. The first way is this. When you hold to this first century restriction and say women can't be pastors or teachers or evangelists or prophets or overseers, uh, you, you, for those women who are gifted in those areas, you've just robbed them of the greatest fulfillment in their life. Because there's no greater fulfillment than doing what God created you to do. To know what God created, this is why we, we put such an emphasis on, on our a class on gifts. To find out what you're wired to do. When you find out what your calling is, what your gifting is, and, and you start doing that, whatever it is, whether it's leadership or, or followership or whatever, doing what God created you to do is so fulfilling. This is the, the, the kind of the purpose and the meaning of your life. But when we say that women, because you're a woman, you can't do that, we're saying to these women who are gifted at teaching and gifted at learning and gifted at leadership or gifted at being visionaries, no, you can't do that. You've got to settle for something less, something else. And what we do is we just condemn them to be bottled up in that giftedness. And God's calling is on their life and the giftingness is there, but they've got to live their life in frustration, not 
not caring at all. I remember a woman, uh, a young woman I, I knew at Bethel College, uh, one of my classes, she was a bright, bright young lady, constantly battling me throughout the whole class on theological points. Our the- theology was very, very different on a number of, of, of points. But I really enjoyed it. You know, it was a good sparring class, a good learning environment. Uh, and she had leadership written all over her. She reeked with leadership. She's the kind of person that when she talked, everyone listened. And when she had a suggestion, everyone followed. She just had leadership written all over her. But she grew up and still believed in a theology that said, you can't ever preach, you can't ever teach, you can't ever have any spiritual authority over a man. She believed that. It was very frustrating for her because she's sitting on this gift. And when you sit on a gift, you see opportunities to use it all around. And if you don't step up to, to fill in those needs and opportunities, it frustrates you. The most cynical people in the church are those who are called to be pastors but said no to it. And they're just so critical of pastors because they, there's a part of them that's always saying, oh, they ought to do it this way, they ought to do it that way, they ought to go here, go there, because they're sitting on their gifts. They never do anything about it. They just complain. And, and, and so is the, the, the frustration of someone who sits on a gift. This young lady came to me one time, and she, and, and she, she said this to me. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, in, I'm, in a, I'm in the grips of warfare here because... Uh, uh, the devil keeps on tempting me. I asked her, how, how does the devil keep on tempting you? She goes, well, you know what? Lately, whenever I hear a preacher at church, I all of a sudden get a picture of myself doing that. Uh, and I see myself preaching. And, and I feel so prideful because I, I, I would enjoy doing that. And the devil's just trying to tempt me. I said, have a seat. <laughs> uh, girl, you're getting the devil confused with God here. That's God calling you. That's God calling you. Let me talk to you a little bit about, about your, your theology. Yes, there are some times and some cultural situations that, that restrict the, the, what a person can do in the body of Christ. But here in the U.S., where it's not Afghanistan, there is simply no reason to be hanging to that. And, and, and so wherever God calls you, whatever level that is, whatever ministry it is, whatever gifting you have, women, we encourage you in Jesus' name to step into it and enjoy it and live it out and, and, and grow in it. No reason why... Now look, not all women are called to leadership. Most aren't, because most men aren't called to leadership. Wherever God calls you, it is a glorious and noble and praiseworthy thing. If God calls you to, to focus on your family, to take care of kids, to support your, your spouse, that is a good and honorable and praiseworthy, admirable calling, living it. Whether you're a man or a woman who's called to that, uh, that's a praiseworthy thing. And if you're called to set up chairs or tear down chairs or be a greeter or work in the children's ministry, all of that is glorious and wonderful and noble. There's no little point system here where the more authority you have, the better you are. It's all admirable and good and glorious. What's not glorious is when God calls you a specific ministry and you say no because you're a woman, despite the fact that the calling is there and the gifting is there. If God is calling you to some level of leadership, rise up in it. Wherever God calls you, what's so important is we say yes to God. And even if it means we swim upstream in a particular religious culture, because they're not affirming it, we swim upstream. Because when God says yes, the body of Christ dare not say no. We rob women of the fulfillment and the joy of doing what God calls them to do. The second catastrophe is this. We rob the church. We rob the church. With that one decision that we're going to adhere to this first century patriarchal limitation. When you make that decision, you've just wiped out half your leaders, wiped out half your teachers, wiped out half your, your preachers, wiped out half your prophets, wiped out half of the visionaries of the church. And that can't be good for the church. 
You know, in Genesis 1, the Lord says this. Follow me on this. He says he creates man and women in his image. Both are in the image of God equally. And then he says, because you're in my image, I want you, plural, I want you to rule and have dominion over this world. The principle here is this. We rule best when we rule together, men and women. In fact, we do everything best when we do it together. Uh, we're wired a little bit differently. You know, have you noticed that? Now, I don't pay, I don't, I, I'm the last person in the world to, to buy into stereotypes. There's always exceptions, and so we're talking statistically here. But generally speaking, men tend to see the world in a particular way, and women t- tend to see it in a little different way, generally speaking. And, and, and we tend to respond a little bit different. We're, we're, we're chemically wired different, and, and, and you know, we know those distinctions. And we need the complementarity of both in order to do things well. We rule best when we do it together. We parent best when we parent together. We do business best when we do it together. And we lead in church best when we do it together. I'm so thankful for the women that we have at Woodland Hills Church who are in leadership. Praise God for Janice Rollings. Praise God for Mary Van Sickle. Praise God for Annie Purdue Olson. Praise God for Earlene on our over. We would not be what we are if it was not for women in leadership. Now, sometimes it'd be easier to have an exclusively male-run thing. Uh, Janice and I are the two main authorities, spiritual authorities in Woodland Hills Church, and, and, and sometimes she gets on my nerves. She bugs me. I know I never bug her, but she bugs me once in a while. But see, here, here's, here's why it illustrates the principle. I know that I see things a particular way. I am, as you all know, 100% pure male. I, you know, what do I say? What do I say? I, I, sorry. And so I, I tend to see things from a male perspective, and I tend to respond to things in, in what it would be stereotypically a, a male perspective. You know, sometimes I can be a little too aggressive, and I want to get in there, let's fix it right now, and, and I operate out of my frustration rather than my wisdom, and, and you know, there's a little testosterone all over the place, and I want to go in there and bash heads, come on, figure it out, and, and whatnot. I don't always do that, but I'm just saying, I have a tendency, you know. And Janice is a little bit more, uh, you know, like, let's slow down a little bit. Let's look at the different perspectives. Let's enter into their, their perceptions. You know, she's got this, what's it called, relationship thing, uh, where she's interested in the relational aspect of things. And now, look, if, if I was, if, if, if I, if I was making uh, decisions by myself, uh, I would invariably make mistakes. If she was doing it by herself, she definitely needs me. <laughs> She'd be making major mistakes. But see, the point is we need each other. And so it is on the board, and so it is in pastoral leadership, and so it is at every level of the church. We, we need each other's perspective. It's not always the easiest way to do things, but it's the godly way to do things. It's the wise way to do things. I honestly feel sorry for church, churches that are exclusively male-run, because they're going to tend to, not always, but they'll tend to make mistakes in certain areas that are actually pretty predictable. Because we're looking at things simply from one uh, perspective, from one angle. We need both. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why uh, some of the theology of the church, and this will probably get me in trouble, but that'd be new. Uh, But you know what? I'm convinced one of the reasons why the church's theology got a little bit screwed up early on is because it was all men doing the theologizing. Uh, You know, think about this. Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. If you see me, you see the Father, he says. We're supposed to get all of our thinking supposed to be centered on Jesus Christ. So here's what God is like. He wins the world by dying on the cross, letting people crucify him as he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He dies for his enemies. Okay, he wins the world by coming under the world and bleeding for the world. 
That's what God is like. Fast forward the movie a couple hundred years, and you, now you've got, in the dominant church tradition, a model of God, where God, God is like a, a turbocharged Caesar, and he runs the world by this omni-control. You've got this hyper-testosterone, mucho-macho God who's simply flexing his muscle like Arnold Schwarzenegger and just decreeing that things get done. How did that happen? Well, one of the reasons is because all the theologizing is being done by people who tend to admire that kind of power. So they make God after their own image. Women, we need some women theologians in the church. Uh, you know, praise God for the ones we've got, but we need more. We need women who are doing biblical exegesis from a women's perspective. We need more women pastors, more women senior pastors, more women overseers, more women prophets, more women visionaries. We need women in leadership across the board. The church suffers when we don't have that. So my heart is to say, and I, you can tell I, I'm passionate about this, for the sake of the church, if not for your own sake, step into the calling of God. God, while we, you can't ignore the culture, in this culture right here and right now, God's heart is for you to be all you can be in the body of Christ, whatever ministry that is. Whatever level of leadership it is, if God's gifted you and equipped, equipped you, step into it and begin to enjoy the satisfaction of doing what you were created and saved and inspired to do. Women, like one famous preacher said, women, be thou loosed. Be thou set free. Set free to be what God calls you to be. Praise God. Praise God. Step into it. Step into it. And we're going to have a time of ministry here in a little bit uh, where I, I, we're going to be praying for the, for the women in our church uh, we're going to enter into a time of worship. Could I call the, the worship team up here? And could I call the ushers forward? We'll start by doing worship. It's really an expression, the quintessential expression of worship, and that is taking up an offering. This is where we bleed together for the body of Christ. Uh, it, it's, it's really a microcosm of what we do all the time because the kingdom is the kingdom because it looks like Calvary. It feels like Calvary. It feels like sacrifice. And so give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. It's an act of worship. Worship God with your mouth. Worship God with your giving. And then uh, when we're done with that, we're going to enter into a time of ministering to the women of our congregation. Holy Spirit, take charge. Have your way. Do your thing. Set people free. Be honored with this offering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.